Um, so we're looking uh, at the story of Moses. Um, if it's anything like the story of David or our journey through Psalms, we could be here for the next 10 years. And so you need to get comfortable and happy uh, and appreciate Moses. Uh, he is a critical character um, in the story of faith in Scripture. Uh, and so we sort of, we began, um, I think it was on Mother's Day, we sort of began this journey of sort of uh, him being put in this sort of reed boat in the Nile, um, and then he sort of grows up, and he grows up under uh, uh, the wealth of Pharaoh's household, and he's educated. Um, and then there's these two moments of delivery that we've both, that we've looked at. Um, just see uh, where we are there. So we've had these two moments of delivery. One, a slave driver was beating on one of his Israelite brethren, and he intervened, killed the Egyptian, and both the Israelites and the Egyptians despised him for this act. They, uh, uh, they reacted badly, and Moses legs it. He goes into exile. He journeys into the wilderness. He discovers the Midianites, these uh, uh, nomads, these wanderers around the, uh, the desert. And in this new place, in this nomadic existence, um, there's another moment of delivery. We find Moses can't help but try and help the oppressed. And so we find these seven daughters uh, of essentially Jethro, and they come into the well to water their sheep, and then these uh, uh, peaky blind uh, sort of bullies come in, and uh, he sort of defends them. And the women water their, sh their, their sheep and bring them home to their dad, who goes, you're home early, and they go, yeah, we were rescued. And, and he goes, well, where is he? And they're like, oh yeah, we've got to bring him. So they go and, and bring him. And then we have this joyful moment, this, this, this moment of uh, love. I really, really like it. I'm not ever sure I've uh, appreciated it before. Um, this guy that didn't know who he was, that didn't know what place he should have, suddenly finds himself blessed. He suddenly finds himself welcomed. He suddenly finds somewhere a home. And Zipporah becomes his wife, and Gershon becomes his uh, son. And it's a moment of rich blessing. And at the risk of boring you, I'm going to read to you my favourite description of domestic bliss I have ever come across. Um, it mentions children, so it I can probably never read it at a wedding because you kind of like, they don't put too much on those new couple. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, it says this, and I just want you to uh, just enjoy, perhaps, God's design of marriage in this text. Love is a holy mystery and ought to be hidden from all other eyes, whatever happens, and that makes it holier and better. Husband and wife respect one another more, and much is built on respect. And if once there has been love, if they have been married for love, why should love pass away? Surely one can keep it. It is rare that one cannot keep it. And if the husband is kind and straightforward, why should not love last? The first phase of married love will pass. It is true. But then there will come a love 
that is better still. Then there will be the union of souls. Does that not sound delightful? A union of souls. They will have everything in common. There will be no secrets between them. And once they have children, the most difficult times will seem to them happy so long as there is love and courage. Even toil will be a joy. You may deny yourself bread for your children and even that will be a joy. They will love you for it afterwards so that you are laying by for your future. As the children grow up, you feel you are an example, a support for them. And even after you die, your children will always keep your thoughts and feelings because they have received them from you and they will take on your semblance and likeness. So you see, this is a great duty. How can it fail? to draw the father and mother nearer. People say it's a trial to have children. Who says that? I tell you who says that, parents say that. <laughs> People say it's a trial to have a children. Who says that? It is heavenly happiness. Are you fond of little children? I am awfully fond of them. You know, and I really like this, um, I think this is like really accurate. It's not just romance. But it is something I recognise uh, in, in, uh, in the early stages of all my three kids, and it says this. Um, a rosy baby boy at your bosom. And what a husband's heart is not touching his wife nursing his child. A plump little rosy baby, sprawling and snuggling, chubby little feet and hands, clean, tiny little nails, so tiny that it makes you one laugh to look at them. Eyes that look as if they understand everything. And while it sucks, it clutches at your bosom and with its little hands plays. When its father comes up, the child tears itself away from the bosom, flings itself back, looks at the father, laughs as though it were fearfully funny, and then falls to suckling again. Or it will bite its mother's breast when its little teeth are coming, while it looks sideways at her with its little eyes as though saying, look, I'm biting. It's not all that happiness when they're all free together, husband, wife and child. One can forgive a great deal for the sake of such moments. So as uh, this great picture of domestic bliss comes to you, as you imagine perhaps your own experiences or, or seeing that around, you just, uh, uh, just take in this wonderful union of father, mother, and child. And as we imagine it, I want you to imagine Moses in that moment. He has been, he's had some tough times. He has not known where his home was. And now with Zipporah and Gershom, this is him. He suddenly found contentment. He suddenly found a home. He suddenly found rest. Zipporah's feeding baby Gershom, and Gershom locks his head back and laughs as Moses comes in through the door from uh, uh, looking after the sheep. It is no surprise that he stays in that place of domestic happiness for 40 years. It is no surprise that he goes, you know, I'm going to stay here. This is where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else but in the presence of my wife and child. But even as these, these three enjoy each other's company, 
Time marches on. You cannot freeze frame any moment. However rich your experience is in that time, you know it moves on and time marches on in this story too. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 2 because something important is happening on the world stage. Exodus chapter 2 verse uh, 23, it says this, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry of help, because of their slavery, it went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The king is dead. Long live the king. The king is dead. The king that identified Moses as a terrorist, that identified Moses as a murderer, that identified Moses as an Israelite insurrectionist. He is the one that chased young Moses, relatively at 40, out of Egypt into uh, the clutches of the Midianites. And suddenly the king is dead. Moses is no longer a criminal. The king is dead. Suddenly Moses is no longer a fugitive. The king is dead and a new chapter is beginning. The king is dead, but Moses is happy with Zipporah and Gershom. The king is dead and he is not going to stay there. The king is dead and the nation needs liberating. The king is dead, the Israelites' prayers need answering. The king is dead, the Egyptian army needs vanquishing. The king is dead, the slavery needs to be brought to an end. Friends, Scripture and the Holy Spirit make it very clear that Moses isn't the only one in the story. Each of us have been called into great, God's great story, this story of Jesus coming to save the whole world and his uh, um, return. Each of us have been grafted in into this majestic narrative of God doing something resplendent uh, for all of creation to witness. And there is a call, and hopefully you are all well aware of it, that we are being called to discern our part to play. We are to discern the function we have in the story that's being told in our times. We are to discern the part we are to play with the people around us, the fellowship we belong to, the uh, uh, work that we're in, and the neighbourhood we enjoy. We have our part to play in the story that is unfolding in our times now. We have our part to play. We have our gifts to bring. We have uh, our uh, um, part to join in with. And the time moves on. The kings die. The chapters change. Nothing ever stays the same. Whatever part you may have enjoyed at once, it moves on. I really enjoyed sixth form. You can't stay at sixth form forever. <laughs> Didn't have much time for secondary school. I'm glad secondary school uh, moved on. New challenges come. And they come. And they come. And you have to prepare for them. And you have to look at them. When hardships come, when the next chapter isn't what you wanted it to be, you don't have to sink 
into despair. You don't have to sink into a powerlessness, depression. It will pass. Sometimes these things feel like they will last forever, but I can guarantee you, whatever hardship you are going through, it does not last. It will not last forever. There is one guarantee that it is finite. And the alternative is true. And we Christians aren't always so good at this. When gladness rides, we are not to be fooled that that is our lot for the rest of our lives. When good things come our way, that is not necessarily the story for the rest of our lives. I find it fascinating uh, how many uh, prominent Christian leaders have seen immense suffering in their lives and it tempers what they say. But the ones that live in rich churches and comfortable houses, they can say, you know what, you're doing things badly, you need to do things my way and life will just be a perpetual moment of bliss. And the king is dead. We need to understand these chapters move on, the pages turn. Everything is fleeting. Everything changes. Nothing is solid. And so the only call is for each of us is to faithfully and courageously meet whatever the next chapter brings. I don't know what Monday brings. We've got the uh, people coming to change our bathroom and I've got no idea what they're going to find under the floorboards. I've got a sinking submission. It is not going to be cheap and pretty. Um, but we've got no idea what tomorrow brings. We've got no idea uh, what drama will come our way. And all we can do is meet with it with faithfulness and courage. We are neither prisoners in a prison or holiday makers in a holiday camp. We are neither in Brixton or Butlins. We are neither in a place where we're going to stay locked up forever or stay riding the merry-go-round forever. These things move on and we have to prepare ourselves for them and, and be relaxed about them and face whatever God has for our next chapter. The king is dead. We are pilgrims on a journey. These bodies that we take care of, or not so much, they're just tents. They, they are temporary accommodation until Jesus returns. We are living not for the now, not for the uh, catalogue of antidepressants and painkillers that we're living in, or uh, blissful moments of domestic bliss, where every school report is an A-star. We are pilgrims going through. And we are living for the permanence of the kingdom, for the majesty of Jesus' return. So, in 66 BC, um, Emperor Nero came around. Uh, there's lots of different uh, ideas about this, uh, but I think the uh, number 666 in Revelation refers to Hero, and there's quite a few scholars 
that agree with me. If you don't, you know what? Uh, uh, it's not the end of the world. But uh, Nero was this nasty, tyrannical leader who was just a real despot and lived in debauchery uh, and he was no friend of the Christians. And anyway, the Jews got a bit hacked off with this guy and they rose up, they rose up in revolt uh, and they set up a rebel government in Jerusalem uh, because they were not liking what Rome, the direction Rome was heading. And during this rebellion, uh, there was this siege of Yodfat, which is a, a, a town um, in Israel. And there was this famous uh, Roman leader, this captain. Um, he'd already helped conquer Britain, so thanks for um, uh, Vespasian. Uh, he'd already conquered Britain and he came back and now he was going to deal with the Jews in Yodfat. Um, and he mostly decimated the town and killed most people, but he took a few prisoners. And one of the prisoners uh, was this guy, uh, Josephus. Now, Josephus was a practical kind of guy. He wasn't going to lose, lose his life needlessly. He looks like he did a bit of bargaining, uh, a, a, a little bit of uh, Del Boy um, sort of uh, bargaining. And he managed to get onto their payroll instead. So he became an interpreter for the Romans and uh, uh, came quite high up and was eventually allowed to become a free man uh, uh, by the, uh, the emperor of the time. And anyway, so Josephus saw his nation torn apart. He saw the Jews infighting and being oppressed by the Jews and he was traumatised by that and he wanted to write a reasonable account of how they got to where they were. The, the history of the Jews so that they would remind themselves of what was going on and to let the, the Romans know all that the Jews had gone through to get to this place where they had this place to call home. And so Josephus writes his uh, The Antiquities of the Jews. And in the middle of this Antiquities of the Jews, you find this very, very important piece of history. It says this. Now it happened that the Egyptians grew delicate and lazy, as to painstakingly so. And they gave themselves up to other pleasures, and in particular to the love of gain. And they also became very ill-affected towards the Hebrews, as touched with envy at their prosperity. For when they saw how the nation of the Israelites amongst them flourished, and were eminent already in plenty of wealth, which they acquired by their virtue and love of labour, they thought their increase was to their own detriment. The Egyptians were feeling that the uh, Israelites were getting too successful. If that xenophobia is familiar to you, it is something that just goes through all histories. And having in length of time forgotten the benefits they had received from Joseph, particularly the crown uh, becoming now into another family, they became abusive to the Israelites and they contrived many ways of afflicting them. For they enjoined them to cut a great number of channels to the river and to build walls for their cities and ramparts that they might restrain the river and hinder its waters from stagnating upon its running over its banks. They set them also to build pyramids and by all this wore them out and forced them to learn all sorts of mechanical arts and to accustom themselves to hard labour. Four hundred years did they spend under these afflictions, 
for they strove one against the other, which should get the mastery. The Egyptians desiring to destroy the Israelites by these labours, and the Israelites desiring to hold out to the end under them. And we find in this history that Josephus presents the Gentiles and the Jews. We were in slavery once, a thousand years ago. The Egyptians wanted to wipe us out. We had helped them. We had saved them from the famine. We had interpreted Pharaoh's dream so that the, uh, uh, the um, sort of fridges and, and stocks could be replenished. And now they were hated and despised and the Egyptians wanted to bring genocide against the Israelites. And this is their memory. And this is what Josephus is, is uh, perpetuating. And this is how the Jews live day by day. We were once subject to the Egyptians. We were once uh, subject to genocide. We were once subject to the most horrific unjust, hard labour. And as Josephus encourages the Jews and the Romans to get their heads round these atrocities, it is not surprising, is it, that the Israelites pray. It is not surprising that as the Israelites felt they were helpless and had no recourse for rescue, that they cried out to God. And the account that I read from Scripture earlier on in Exodus reminds us, even as they faced genocide, they prayed. And their prayer for rescue went again and again. If we have moved from one chapter in our life to the next, in Jesus' story, we may find that we are in a nice place right now. We might have a home, we might have a family, we might have health and wealth. And we can perpetuate the myth that everyone can live like this if they just behave like us. But that is not true. There will always be those wrestling with pain, always those struggling with misfortune, always those that never quite seem to get their head above water. There will always be suffering until Jesus returns. We are not masters of it. And today, we know, right now, that there are many in our congregation that live under physical pain, live under mental distress, and live under circumstantial tragedy. You know, stuff that is out of their control, that has just knocked their feet from under them. And sometimes we just feel slowed down and all it takes is a, a bit of get up and go and we'll solve our problems. And sometimes we impose that on other people. Oh, if only you would do this and then suddenly you will get back on your feet. Other times we just feel slow and lethargic as if nothing that we do would make a jot of difference and we get swallowed up in misery and we've seen both of those manifestations in our church. Some people are, are, are knocked down and they think, you know what, well, all I need is to try harder and I'll get back. Others are knocked down and they stay down and uh, they wonder where on earth things can go from here. But our passage today reminds us that kings do fall, that 
slavery ends, that prayers get answered. If you have a Bible, listen to this great parable Jesus told on prayer. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable, we're looking at Luke 18, to show them what? That they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Fearsome widows. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see them crying on the kitchen floor and they will get justice and they will get it quickly. The crises we face, the next chapters where things go badly, aren't just invitations for sadness and uh, or hyperactivity where we just work really hard to try and overcome the difficulties. These crises are opportunities to draw near to God, who always invites the cries and prayers of his people. He wants to hear you. He wants you to say something to him. He doesn't want you to just grin and bear it. He doesn't want you to wallow in self-recriminations. He doesn't even want you to go out and go get them. He wants to hear from you. He wants your prayers and petitions. He wants you to cry out to him night and day. Because in the end, it is not the overcoming or uh, submission to the crisis that's important. It is your relationship with God. It's your ability to go, I know my God is steadfast and faithful and whatever tomorrow brings, I can face it. I know my God is steadfast and faithful and that I am looking forward to an eternity with him. And as I close, I want us to be reassured that our text today doesn't just say prayers were answered. Our text doesn't say people cried out and then God answered and everything was lovely. God has a bigger plan in place. There is something grander to enjoy. There is a majesty and epic scale that will mean what happens now gets told for generations. And it is not just that God rescues their slaves, it is part of a bigger narrative. God remembers not just the Israelites, but he remembers their forefathers. He remembers their uh, ancestors. He remembers the people that he promised to long ago. And we are told of these names of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And hopefully you know the story of Abraham. Hopefully you know the story of Isaac. And uh, I'm going to read the promise, the last promise that God remembers here. This promise 
to Jacob. And as we hear of the Israelites cry, as we know that Moses is going to come and rescue them, as we know that Jesus is the ultimate answer to this promise, I want you to listen to this great story. So it says this in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob left Bathsheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, which is top uh, reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, bare above it to the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord your God, of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, and to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. What a promise to give to this guy lying on the rock on his own. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and watch, will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. And when Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Israel was not a people that warranted God's attention. They were not clever, they were not holy, they were not mighty, they were not ingenious, uh, they were not pure. Uh, there was nothing about them that made God go, oh, you know what, I'm going to make the Israelites my people. The story of the Israelites is only about God's grace. And out of his graciousness, he would use them to uh, whisper Christ all the way through their history up to the point that Jesus came. And Jesus is the promise that Jacob is given at this moment. When he says, I'm going to bless all people through you, it is Jesus as the ultimate answer to this great uh, uh, promise given by God. And so when Israel finally cries out, to uh, God in Egypt, God goes, you know what, now is the time to move the story along. Now is the time to bring that promise that I promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob a little nearer. And it is another step towards this masterpiece that God is bringing about. And so the same is true for us. You are not chosen, and I am not chosen, because I am holy. I am not chosen because I am better, or cleverer, or richer. When God looked through time at me, he did not see me as someone more receptive to his grace than anyone else. It was just out of his sovereignty that he chose me, and you. Just like Israel, we are the same. We have not, nothing to recommend ourselves. We are chosen because of his grace. And then when we confess Jesus, we are 
main part of this story. We are main part of this story where uh, God is blessing the whole world through this story, uh, uh, from this promise of Jacob. And God has made great promises. God makes individual promises. So some of us will be holding on to individual promises and some of us will have seen them come to fruition. Some of us have had healing and promises of family and uh, promises of purpose and jobs and, and uh, other things. But more important than that is that we are part of this promise to Jacob that God is going to bless the whole world through Jesus. Let me close with this reading. Ephesians chapter 3. If you want a context for your life, if you want a setting for how you are to see things, listen to this. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And then verse 10, which uh, if it's not underlined in your Bibles and your apps, it should be. God's intent was that now, through the church, that is you and me, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You and I are not accidents. We are not uh, uh, victims of misfortune. We are uh, glorious parts of a heavenly plan of salvation. And today, every single person that uh, confesses Jesus and is part of this wonderful church that spans through all the ages. We are demonstrations of God's glory. We are the announcement of the mystery of Christ. And suddenly it puts everything in perspective. Please bear your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you heard the Israelites cry. Lord God, I pray that as we read this epic story, that we would be reassured about the peaks and troughs in our lives, that they're all passing, that we are working towards a heavenly kingdom. Lord God, I pray as we read this story that we would be uh, overwhelmed by the demonstration of your love through Jesus, that you took such care and attention to reveal. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, whatever highs and lows we experience, that we would know and be strengthened by the fact that we are part of the demonstration of your glory. That as the church, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are an announcement to all of creation of your mercy and your grace and your love. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.